Hi, my name is Scott, and I'm one of the elders here at Southridge Church. And today we are going to speak on the, the third of three sermons, um, topics to continue following this uh, sermon series called Well-Versed. So Well-Versed is about a series of um, sermons talking about timeless truths and wisdom from songs or uh, things that we've sung that we haven't heard for a while ago. So in the w- first week, we talked about lament. Uh, last week, Stu talked about um, praise and worship. And today, I'm going to talk about the concept of perseverance. And all these are kind of tied to the books of Psalms, which are actually a, a list of um, collection of songs or songs that were sold um, back in the, the old times for it. And to continue kind of the, the thought process for what we're talking about, one of... Uh, one of my favorite movies, if we all like to talk about movies and the concept of perseverance, is the movie Rudy. So we're getting close to football season. Hopefully many of you are aware of, have watched Rudy, but for those of you who don't know the basic premise of the movie, it's about a person, Rudy. His name is Rudy Rudiger. He grew up extremely poor. He is one of three of 14 children, and he grew up in the outskirts of Chicago, and his dream was to play football at Notre Dame. The problem was he was five foot six, weighed about 165 pounds, was dyslexic, and extremely poor. But he had this dream. He wanted to play at Notre Dame. So as the movie tells the story, it's a little bit different than the doing some research on the actual story. They're similar, but a little bit different. But he ended up uh, joining the Army, not working in a steel mill, but he... Uh, used his GI Bill money from being in the military to go to Holy Cross, Cross College. While he was at Holy Cross, he learned, he came across some people that told him if he got all A's, he could potentially make it into Notre Dame. So what he did is he applied himself. He ended up getting a job at the grounds crew, working at actually Notre Dame while going to Holy Cross, and then he applied. He was rejected. He, did, he continued doing his studies. He applied again. He was rejected. On the third time, he was finally accepted. And then his goal was to now get on the football team. Well, when you're five foot six, it's kind of hard to be on the football team. He still persevered, and he ended up getting selected onto the scout team. The scout team basically's job is to just become human te- uh, tackle dummies. And so he got on the scout team, and he did his job actually probably a little too well. Um, but there was no way he was going to see a game until his senior year. A couple of the, the upperclassmen went to the coach and said, can you play him? Um, they ended up letting him play, and he actually got a sack, and he was the first person, and my understanding is I think the only person that's ever been carried off the field at Notre Dame. So it's kind of an interesting story, and it's a, actually a feel-good story. It's kind of a good American story, but imagine for a second if Rudy never made it into Notre Dame, or he did make it into Notre Dame and he tried out for the practice squad and didn't make it, or he never got to play it down at Notre Dame game. I I doubt we would know the story, nor would we know anything about him, and definitely there would probably not be a movie made about him. But he he exhibited the character qualities of perseverance. So what is perseverance? So perseverance, the Oxford definition of it, defines perseverance as persisting in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving. A biblical way of kind of looking at, at perseverance, it can be defined as endurance in the present, created by the hope of some future expectation, joy, relief, 
or accomplishment. So kind of going back to the same situation, uh, two weeks ago I talked about one of my dark times in my life or the hardest things that I went through was at school where I felt really alone. Imagine when I was going through that situation where I was working, uh, doing a ton of homework, like eight or ten hours a night, having no social life and just, you know, just trying to get by. If in the middle of that, I knew I, someone came to me and said, by the way, you aren't going to graduate with your degree and you aren't going to, and all this stuff that you're doing is not going to result in what you think it's going to, to do. What do you think that would have been my result if I kind of looked at that situation? I would probably not be quite as diligent doing my schoolwork, probably, right? It would have some sort of neg negative implication on my effort level. Or what, let's say you're trying to sacrifice for a big home purchase or some sort of um, big thing, big ticket item that you're trying to buy. And so you are investing, you are, you are sacrificing your living. Um, you're not doing your normal expenditures that you would normally do. Maybe you're living on beans and rice, as Dave Ramsey likes to call it. But you're doing that, but yet someone comes to you in the middle of that and says, hey, by the way, this thing you're sacrificing for, you aren't going to get. How do you think that that would um, affect you? And just taking the story of Rudy, we wouldn't know about Rudy if that happened, right? Um, so that kind of these same things, there's like, if we look at just the human life and the human condition is that there, there is, and just look at our life, kind of what we talked about two weeks ago with just is there's suffering in this world. There's a lot of difficult things. And one of the challenges that we face is like, how do we answer why is there so much suffering in, in the world? So like, I get that God uses pain and trials in our life, but how do we balance the whole thing with the fact that we view that God is a loving God and the fact that there was the Holocaust. Or if Christianity is true, why do so few people believe in it, relatively speaking, and why isn't God doing more to get more people saved? Like, I would kind of just thought, it was like, if you look at a lot of times in the Old Testament times, they talked about angels or clouds or there's all this visual presence of God in order to help direct people. Why doesn't he do that now um, with it? So today we're going to kind of look at this difficult question that's kind of out there, which is how do you unpack the experience of man in the Bible and just suffering and how we respond to that? Why is there suffering? What does it mean? What's the purpose of it? And so today I kind of wanted to dig into the, the biggest book of suffering probably in the Old Testament and the one that we talk about perseverance the most, which is the book of Job. So for those of you that are familiar to it, we are going to go through it, but we're going to go through it pretty quickly to be able to do there. But um, the main part of our focus will be on chapters 38 through 40. But first, give you a little bit of background on it. So in Job 1 through 3, in the land of Uz, there was a man named, jo there's, there was a man named Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man all, among all the people of the East. So this is first the standard. It gives you a little bit of background of him. So Job was from the land of Uz. Actually, um, scholars don't know where Uz is. Um, you could say that he... Um, there's probably a reason for that. One of the, the reasons for it is that um, the focus of the story is not about Job. It's about God and choosing him. Uh, we also know 
another thing about Job is that he wasn't an Israelite because Job wasn't an Israelite name. And uh, back in the day, it was very clear you can delineate between that based upon the name and the background of him. Uh, but the key aspect of the story is kind of his suffering. Uh, it does talk about him as a person. He's blameless and upright, which means that he's a really high character guy. So it means he's likely he's like that person that helps the old ladies cross the street. He ate all his vegetables. He turned into his library books on time, and he probably even read every worm of every word of the terms and conditions for his new iPhone updates. Like all of us do that, right? But after this brief introduction. We get whisked off to heaven where God is basically having a staff meeting. Um, and he starts talking and Satan actually shows up to that staff meeting. Um, so Satan in Hebrew means the accuser or prosecutor. Um, Satan is the, the Hebrew word for it. And so S- Satan basically starts to challenge God at the staff meeting. He says, God, you know, the only reason people serve you is that it is in their own self-interest. They serve you because you give them stuff. Let them suffer, and they'll give you up, give them up. So God says, all right, take Job. You can take everything in his life from him that he loves, and you'll see that he values you. And so for the next two chapters, that's basically what happens. For those of you that are familiar with the story, he basically takes everything away from him. Um, with the, One of the interesting things is he doesn't take away his wife. Um, not sure exactly what that means, but, but later in the, the story, you kind of say that she wasn't really the best encourager for him, um, and she turns out to be a pretty cranky and kind of mean person to Job, but she, her life is spared, but some of his kids, all of his livestock, all of his wealth is taken away, and then he gets boils on his body. He's basically in a miserable situation, and at the point of this narrative, you should be like, wait, what, like, why would God allow this to happen? Here's a guy that's doing all the things right, all the things that the Bible teaches, all the things that we're supposed to do as believers, but yet he... Um, doesn't be able to do it. And so what happens is he has three of his best friends come and see him, and they are pretty decent friends because they basically come and similar to him, they go into ash cloth and they sit next to him and he's in his misery. And they say to him like, hey, look, we know that God is just. And we know that everything happens for a reason. So the fact that you're suffering means there's a reason God is doing this to you. But Job pushes back and says, that's not true. Job knows his true character. He's saying, I'm not saying not perfect, but I'm innocent of anything that would warrant this level of punishment and pain that's resulting from it. And so they push back and say, come on, like, this doesn't happen to to people. You had to do something to really deserve this. And this whole back and forth basically goes on for 37 uh, chapters. Finally, Job kind of has enough of it and says, listen, you're wrong. The more you talk, the worse I feel. And your talking is not going to change my situation or my feelings. So it reminds me of a story of the man who got pulled over by a police officer, and the police officer comes to him, and he said, do you know how fast you were going? And the man's wife is next to him and says, well, the man says no, but the wife says, yeah, you know how fast you were going. And then the officer says, did you know your taillight was out? And his wife then says, oh, yes, he's known for months. Then the officer said, why aren't you wearing your seatbelt? And then his wife says, you took it off when you were coming up. No, you never wear it. Finally, the man yells, woman, would you just be quiet? The officer then turns and says to the wife, does he always treat you this way? And she responds, only when he's drunk. So in this case, it's basically in a similar situation where, um, where 
where Job is basically to his friends, stop talking, you aren't helping. And so his friends are exhausted. They don't see of anything that they can do. And so they just leave him to be there by himself. And then we finally get to chapter 38, and God shows up. So, and Job says, at last I'm going to get some answers. But instead, God shows up and starts to tell Job a bunch of questions. Actually, there are 64 questions to be exact. And things are kind of, there's some really interesting and actually some kind of funny stories as part of this. So first he starts with kind of these intellectual questions. Job, were you around when I shaped the earth? Of course, Job was not there. And what were you doing when I put the constellations together? While you're at it, where do storms come from and, who, and can you predict when they're coming? There's even some like really weird, random, odd questions. He actually asks, do you know about the reproduction habits of goats? This is actually true. It's in there, verse 39, verses 1. Or why ostriches are so lucky, or so ugly. That's actually in verse um, 38, verses 13. And then he asks Job, can you explain grape nuts? No, he doesn't do that, but they're neither grape nor the nuts, so we can't explain why they are or why they're called that, but there are a lot of weird things in this world that we don't understand. So you get the kind of the question of these things, and God is basically sitting there and showing a perspective. He's saying, Job, you can't even fathom all of the, the mystery behind natural things that you can see, let alone the things that you can't see that are eternal or supernatural. You see, the assumption is that Job and all his friends are working off of what they know enough about the world to analyze it. So in other words, they're looking at it from a human perspective. They're, they're focusing, I mean, they're using what gifts that we've been given, right? Our human mind, our ability to reason and to understand, and they're applying it to the situation. God's looking at it from a totally different situation, from a totally different capability of it. So it's kind of looking at it from a small one-dimensional view versus God's playing three-dimensional chess. Um, there's just a different level of perspective on it. And maybe one way that's not even close to being it, but is an example like with your kids, right? Your kid, you know your, your kid is, chi- is super tired, and you're like, you need to go to bed. And the kid's like, no, I want to stay up and play, right? But you're like, no, I know you need this. Like, you, you need this. This is how you need to solve your problem. Like, you, there are things going on in your life where you're crying about everything, and it needs to be solved with sleep. But the kid's like, no, I don't want that. And the kind of similar the th- situation that you have here with Job and God. So you have someone that has the knowledge of what is needed to be done or the perspective on what is going on that's causing the situation and how to fix it. But we as humans are just sitting there saying, no, no, like I know what's best and, or I know what I know and, and you're wrong. And that's exactly kind of the situation that we're in there. And then continue on into chapter 40 where God says, while we're at it, Job, would you really like to run the world for a day? Do you, do you really want to punish every little act of injustice on every instance? Do you know how many different things are happening in the world one at a time and how many things are interconnected? At the end of chapter 40, God basically says, this is a, a lot more complicated than you thought, little man. So in other words, he's saying, look, you don't have the perspective that I have, and you need to consider it, you need to take that into consideration when you're trying to question me. And then, basically, the rest of the book ends, um, and what we're told is that God takes away the punishment that um, he allowed Satan to apply to him, and then Job is returned sevenfold from what he had. So 
not only his wealth was totally destroyed, and now it was given back, and then he gets that um, many times. It says that who was able to live many days and see his grandkids and other things like that. So we don't get a full response from God on exactly what happened to that. It just like in some cases, there are situations that happen here on earth that we don't always know the situations or the reasoning behind it. But what we do have is a, a, a good perspective on how we can respond when we're put into these situations and how to do that. And so I can put it down into four different principles that we can look at from Job's response to how we do. So the first thing is God's power is sovereign. So throughout this book, we look at the absolute, we see God's absolute power over creation, over angels, and even over Satan. We see that Satan does nothing without God's allowing it to happen. And we see that God has purposes that in creation that go f- far beyond the purview. For example, in um, Job thirty-eight twenty-six, God talks about watering land where no one lives. The point is that there's things in creation that aren't always for man. So sometimes God does things solely for himself, like that land served no purpose. And God's like, I would like that land and I wanted to water it. So I did. So in other words, there's certain things that God does because he wants to do them. Um, Another thing around Job's suffering is that its ultimate purpose was to bring glory to God. So God was demonstrated his glory to Satan and all the angels through Job's suffering. And I know that that can be a hard thing to live with, that God used my suffering for his glory. But I'm telling you that it's one of the secrets to a happy, fulfilled life. When you start to look at things from God's perspective and less from the human's perspective, you'll find a joy that you've never known because we are created to live that way. We're created in God's image, and when you start to uh, understand things or look at things from God's perspective, it starts to change your situation. The next principle to take into consideration is that God's perspective is infinite. So going back to uh, Job 42.3, when God said, who is it that dares to question my judgment without knowledge? He's, he's saying to Job, if you don't even understand the mystery behind natural phenomenon like storms and stars, how are you really going to understand the purpose of an eternal God above them? There's this eternal philosopher's thing called the the problem of evil. It was first stated by Epicurus, where if God is all-loving and powerful, why does he allow something to do? But the problem is that you're missing a premise of wisdom. The question is versus God's power versus ours and the wisdom in our wisdom versus his wisdom. In other words, he's coming at it from a different perspective than we are um, to be able to do that. So think about just for a second, just the power of God and the principle of God to be able to do that. So I just did a little research on it, on how much, just take into consideration how much energy the sun produces. So our sun produces 3.8 times 10 to the 26 watts per second of energy. So that's the equivalent in one second of the sun, 1.8 billion of the most powerful thermonuclear bombs ever built that are produced by, that's the amount of energy, equivalent to the amount of energy that's produced for that. God created that in a single word by saying, let the heavens be created and being able to be doing that. I'm an engineering student, or I studied engineering, and one of the things that I kind of went through was a series of like, as I'm learning all the stuff about 
how things work in this world, um, you start to question, could a God really create this versus is this evolved or over time? And the more that I dug into things and the more I learned about the complexities of different systems and how they work, I saw this inherent view of, of God that you couldn't just generate it from happenstance, which is what evolution teaches. Like a bunch of things just come together, like a whole bunch of these random elements came together and all of a sudden you had DNA. Like the, the, the amount of information that's in a single strand of DNA is, is beyond, like we, in all of our computing power that we have right now, we can sequence DNA, but we can't actually make DNA, even though we know all the components that are in it. We don't have the capability to actually make it. We can parse certain parts out, but we can't actually make it from scratch. And what evolution says is that they weren't, and all of a sudden they, they, they just kind of all randomly came together. All these elements came together in the perfect things, and, and all of a sudden you had life. That's what it teaches with us. We also have the concept of, of um, thermodynamics. And so one of the, the, there's multiple laws of thermodynamics, just like there's laws of gravity, but there was a couple laws of thermodynamics, and then they discovered that there's another law that only applies... That's, that all the other laws are dependent upon. So they called it the zeroth law of thermodynamics. And simply stated is things move from high energy states to low energy states. So if I have warm coffee in here, and uh, what happens is that, warm, that coffee will cool to room temperature. So things always move from a high energy state to a low energy state. What evolution teaches is that things, everything moved to higher and higher energy states. The only way that that coffee becomes hot is if I take some other form of energy and put it into that. Evolution says that there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was something. That there's a certain amount of God's capability where he can just snap his fingers and create something that's more powerful than a billion nuclear warheads and do that, and that's the amount of energy that's produced by one sun when there's millions of suns that exist in the, in the, in the galaxy, and we still question the ability to, on how that exists. And so going back to the story of of. Job is, I think, one of the core problems is that we don't think of God as being bigger than us. We kind of reason that God is just a, a, a similar person to us, but just with a little bit more capabilities um, with it. It's almost like we view his powers like he's like one of these super huge um, weightlifter guys. Have you seen those pictures of the weightlifter guys, that, the guys that, don't, that skip leg day? So they have this massive upper body and their legs are like super scrawny and then they look like, unused, like weird blow-up dolls of some type. Well, we kind of look at God as kind of the opposite where he's this super powerful person. So he's super muscular. He doesn't skip leg day at all, but his brain is super small. And that's not what God is. God is much bigger than we can even imagine and comprehend. And so the problem is when we think of God as being similar to us, even though we are made in his image, but he's much greater than us, it changes our perspective on things um, to be able to do, to do that. And Job, in response to this, actually finally realizes after he's gone through all this thing and all the suffering, is his response to God in Job 42 things is he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things that are too wonderful for me to know. So in other words, he's basically saying, I didn't realize how dumb and limited I was. Now I see how big you are. I realized that there, it was a wrong posture on my question. So our questions are great to ask, but we have to ask them from the perspective of the magnitude of wisdom of God to how you're asking him. The third point, God's purpose is guaranteed. 
one of the most encouraging things in this book is we see that because of God's power is sovereign and his perspective is infinite, even Satan's attempts to attack God's people only furthered God's purpose. Think about it. All of Satan's attacks on Job yielded a book that has provided encouragement to countless believers through the centuries. Do you think that that was the ultimate purpose of what Satan had planned when he started it? No. If you look at his motivation, he's like, I can break that person and I'm going to break that person. And God's like, no, you won't. And Satan lost out on that. And we see this kind of throughout, we see this all throughout scripture. If you think about it, we see it in Acts. Every attempt by Satan to destroy or stomp out the early church only led to its increase and its expansion. The best example, the exa- best example that we have is the cross, right? God took the worst day and turned it into the best day. We don't call it bad Friday. What do we call it? We call it good Friday. And what, what Satan meant to destroy Jesus, basically he hated Jesus, he was trying to destroy him, God chose for our salvation and for our ultimate good by taking all that sacrifice away. And if we believe that that same God did that, then why can't we believe that he can't handle all of our struggles and that everything that's happening is happening for a reason? You, you could probably think about that, going back to the, the story of, of what we talked about two weeks ago with the perspective. Like, there are times where we went through some really hard situations. I gave two of those situations in my life, and now I can look back as time has passed, and I could see how God used that situation. Now we're in, in, we're in the middle of that suffering, we're right in there when we feel the pressure of that suffering on us the most. We don't have that perspective, but as time happens, we can look back at that situation and, and see that. And because we have the confidence or the knowledge of that, we should be able to apply it to new situations that apply. But unfortunately, the human condition is like, we don't like the suffering that we're dealing with, so we tend to not focus in on it. I think there's a great um, uh, quote here from the British journalist Malcolm Mutteridge saying that kind of summarizes this. He says, contrary to what I would have expected, I look back now on experiences that at the time seemed especially devastating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything of value that I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction not through comfort and ease. To, can you see that now? It's, it's now the perspective of Job. So he went through the worst day that any of us have ever gone through, and now he's seeing and saying, look, I see the good of that. I saw what you do. So sometimes God, God does always know what he's doing in us, but there are a couple of purposes for it. He, he lets us suffer in order to chastise us or correct us. He sometimes does it to work through salvation in others. Other times he makes us try and love him more or be more dependent upon him. There can be even more reasons for that, but there are, there's always a purpose in this. And going to the fourth point, which is probably the most encouraging of it, is that God's promise is everlasting. So again, the, if you go into Job 19.25, probably the best verse in there, it says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on earth. So he was using that argument as he's going back and forth with his friends there. A few things in the verse in the end is eternity. The last God is restoring. What we learn is that God, Job's in the middle of the suffering and says, look, no matter, I know that he will stand on earth. And because Job did that and went through that horrible situation, God restored sevenfold to all that he loved. 
the sevenfold is is a analogy to us or this blessing that's that he went through going through the suffering is a picture of eternity that we've been given it's almost a glimpse of what will happen with it uh, with it it psalms 1611 says in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are the pleasures forevermore with it psalms 130 talks about the focus on eternity and all the aspects of what that eternity looks like. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole baiting waits. And in this word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. So what we're seeing here is the fact that if we, we know how the story ends. As Mother Teresa said, comparing eternity is similar to the worst things on earth or like nothing more than a bad night in a cheap hotel. Now, recognizing the key to cope with this, and I think one of the, the stories that I always, one of the perspectives of things that someone always told me is that God wants to remind us that, that earth, even though it has some great attributes, it's not our home, it's not our destination. It's our, we're only here for a short amount of time in comparison to uh, eternity. And that doesn't mean that it's always going to be comfortable, because God doesn't want us to be comfortable because we aren't made for here. We're made for the perfect home that's eventually going there. And really, our job is to choose one of the two paths that we go down. Um, it's really a, a binary solution, right? So we either choose to follow Satan or we choose to follow Christ. There are, there's no middle ground where I can do that. So we either go down a path of trusting God or trusting in ourselves or Satan, or the great deceiver with it. This reminds me of a story told by Tim Keller about a pastor whose wife had just died, and so he was driving back from the funeral, and he was trying to get the, the, help the family cope, and he started to see, so they're driving on the interstate, and they saw this big 18-wheeler, and the father said, would you rather get hit by the 18-wheeler or by the shadow? The youngest daughter was in the back seat, replied, of course, by the shadow. And the pastor replied, your mother was hit by the truck of death, but your mother only had to go through the shadow of death. The sting of death is sin, and the poison of death went into Jesus. My question to you is, do you believe that? After all the things that God put Job through, the biggest question or the biggest takeaway from that is that God gave Job the answer, and the answer was God's presence. That presence was enough. As soon as Job saw who God was, Job Job became satisfied. He became restored. In fact, what God appeared, what we took as being a horrible situation and worse than anything that I would probably say any of us will ever have to deal with in our life, he he was initially focused in on the pain and the suffering, and he was in his misery. But it took him going through that and then finally getting to speak to God till he realized himself that he had the wrong perspective. So again, what does this situation show us when we go through these difficult circumstances or we see pain in this world, we see the suffering in this world? There's four things. God's power is sovereign. 
God's perspective is infinite, God's purpose is guaranteed, and God's promise is everlasting. You, you think you need an explanation? You are, you are just like you can understand. A lot of times when we start to question God, we, we become no different than Job's friends. Asking God to explain everything to him. If, if only, God, you explain this to me, then I'll know and I'll be understanding. What you really need to do is to seek God and re- realize that God is enough and God has done everything that we need to be sanctified and focus in on that. And that's ultimately what God's purpose of that. So kind of what, hopefully that encourages you. And the main thing that I want to take away from this is if you have yet to take that eternal perspective of choosing God, you really need to make do that, to do that. And I don't want you to leave here before you go through that same scenario. And also, if you're going through a hard situation, you need someone to pray for you, we just hope that you would take care of that and do that before we leave. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the story of Job and all that you've um, shown through us through that, Lord. Um, I know that many times I look at my own life and I look at it from an earthly perspective and a selfish perspective, but yet when we turn and we look at all the things that you do and what you represent and how much power you represent, Lord, I just hope that it really just changes our perspective from one of being internally focused to one of being externally focused. I just pray that this would be encouragement to us as we seek to go through and that we can apply it to our lives in your name. Amen.